Let's hear the word of the Lord. This is the account of Shem, Ham, and Jephthah, Noah's sons, who themselves had sons after the flood. The sons of Jephthah, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshach, and Tiraz. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Rehath, Togamoth, the son of Javan, Eliash, Tarshish, the Kittites, and the Rodanites. From these, the maritime people spread out into their territories by their clans within their nations, each with its own language. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sapta, Rama, and Septaka. The sons of Rama, Sheba, and Didan. Cush was the father of Nimrod, who became a mighty warrior on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. That is why it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The first centers of his kingdom were Babylon, Uruk, Akkad, and Kelna in China. From that land, he went to Syria, where he built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ir, and Kala, and Rezin which is between Nineveh and Kala, which is the great city. Egypt was the father of the Luddites, Anamites, Lehabites, Nafuhites, Prahuthites, Kaluhites, and from whom the Philistines came, and Kaphtarites. Canaan was the father of Sidon, his firstborn, and of the Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites, Girgashites, Hevites, Urkites, Sinites, Urvadites, Demorites, and Hathmathites. Later, the Canaanite clan scattered and the borders of Canaan reached from Sidon near Gerar as far as Giza, and then towards Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim, as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham by their clans and languages in their territories and nations. Sons were also born to Shem, whose elder brother was Jephthah. Shem was the ancestor of all the sons of Eber. The sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Arphahaz, Arphazad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Ur, Hul, Gether, and Meshech. Arphazad was the father of Shelah, and she was the father of Eber. Two sons were born to Eber. One was named Peleg, because in his time the earth was divided. His brother was Joktan. Joktan was the father of Almadad, Sheleth, Hazamarath, Zara, Hadaram, Uzal, Dikla, Obel, Abimiel, Sheba, Uthar, Havilah, and Jobdad. All these were sons of Joktan. The region where they lived stretched from Misha towards Shaphar in the east hill country. These are the sons of Shem by their clans and languages in their territories and nations. These are the clans of Noah's sons according to their lines of descent within their nations. From these the nations spread out over the earth after the flood. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we bow in your holy and mighty presence, and our prayer is that your word, as obscure as it may seem, might be our rule, that your honour and your glory may be our supreme concern, and that your Holy Spirit, that he and he alone might be our teacher and our helper. And we ask these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, if you could have your Bibles or that passage open in front of you, that would be great. I wonder when was the last time you got out the family albums, if you even have those anymore, family albums, and looked at the old pictures of your grandparents and maybe your extended family. Your great uncle Bill and distant cousin Nancy. The people who played a part in your life, your upbringing. Uh, who made you who you are today. Uh, perhaps some of us, uh, these photos will bring warm feelings of nostalgia and a happy childhood. For others of us, family is not so much associated with happy memories. Some skeletons are best left firmly in the cupboard. The past can be a painful thing to bring to mind. Uh, today's passage, uh, which may on the surface seem a little dull, and irrelevant is going to help us to understand the origins of families and how they fit into the history of our world. Which, of course, is God's history of the world. God is the father of all the nations of this world. And he has designed his people to be part of his eternal family. In this section, there are foundational truths that point forwards towards the Lord Jesus Christ and show us how foundational he is in shaping our relationship with one another and the rest of the world around us. Now the main lesson uh, you and I are supposed to have taken away from key stage one of the theological education in Genesis chapters 1 to 11 is this. Without divine intervention, there is no hope for the human race. Without divine intervention, there is no hope for the human race. The pattern of this section of God's word is one of success, followed closely by human failure. So God's very good creation of Genesis chapters 1 and 2 is ruined by the rebellion of Adam and Eve in the garden temple and the act of murder by both Cain and Lamech in chapters 3 and 4. The blessing and fruitfulness of chapter 5 is followed by forbidden sexual interactions and the flood of chapters 6, 7 and 8. The Lord's gracious renewing of the covenant of creation with one family is followed by the head of that same family lying naked and drunk. In his tent in chapter 9. Today we are in chapter 10. Uh, which contains one of the oldest. If not the oldest. Ethnological table. In the literature of the ancient world. It reveals a remarkable understanding. Of the linguistic and ethnic situation. Following the flood. Almost all the names in this ancient family tree have been found in archaeological discoveries in the last 150 or so years. 
And many of them appear in subsequent books of the Old Testament. But technically, Genesis chapter 10 is not a genealogy or a family tree. At least not like what we have in chapter 5 and chapter 11 of the book of Genesis. Unlike in those two chapters, Genesis chapter 10 does not constantly repeat the phrase, became the father of. I wonder if you noticed that when I was reading it. Now, Genesis chapter 10 is actually a table of nations that record how the human race, like spokes on a wheel, fanned out across the earth, radiating from a center, which incidentally both science and our scriptures place in the Middle East, the so-called cradle of civilization, the cradle of mankind. Uh, This chapter traces the origins of and the connections between the various people groups. You could literally spend hours tracing the developments of the different people groups, names, civilizations and places. However, time is limited, so I just want to make three observations while thinking about how they might apply to us in 2021. And the first is this. Our human race is made up of a single family. Our human race is made up of a single family. We we must remember that the book of Genesis was originally written, not to us, but by Moses to ancient Israel after they had been rescued out of Egypt hundreds of years ago. I wonder what would have stood out as God's people, the Israelites, heard or had read to them this table of nations. What would have stood out to them was that they themselves came from the same place as all the other nations. What we have recorded in chapter 10 is simply the outworking of Genesis chapters 9, verses 18 and 19. That says this. The sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Jephthah. Verse 19. These were the sons, the three sons of Noah, and from them came the people who were scattered over the whole earth. Notice also how chapter The chapter both begins, chapter 10 both begins and ends. Uh, Verse 1 of chapter 10, this is the account of Shem, Ham, and Jephthah, Noah's sons, who themselves had sons after the flood. That's how chapter 10 begins. Look at how chapter 10 ends, verse 32. These are the clans of Noah's sons, according to their lines of descent within their nations. From these The nation spread out over the earth after the flood. Chapter 1, chapter 10, verse 1, verse 32. As far as Israel was concerned, this table of nations was not a list of strangers, but rather of cousins and far-flung family members. Uh, For example, in verses 2 to 5, we have the sons and grandsons of Jephthah. In verses 6 to 20, we have the sons, grandsons, and great-grandsons of Ham. And similarly, for Shem, in verses 21 to 31. It's as if Moses takes out one big 
family photo with all the family back together again. Brothers and sisters, aunts and uncles, and all the cousins, all smiling into the camera for that one big family photo. Uh, Today, a list of uh, countries in the United Nations ought to strike us in the same way that this table of nations first struck the Israelites as they heard it, as they saw it. It is not a list of strangers, but of cousins and distant relations. Because all of humanity continues to be part of one single big family. Now, according to verse 5, verse 20, and verse 31, for some reason, they end up living in separate territories, in different groupings, while all speaking different languages. Nevertheless, this table of nations tells us that despite all this, we are all still one great big brotherhood of Man, part of a single human family that descended from Noah and his three sons. Uh, The Apostle Paul, speaking in Athens 2,000 years ago, put it like this. From one man, Noah, God, he, that is God, made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God built nations from families and in his providence he determined the times and the places where they should live. In and through him the same blood runs through all our veins. You and I share the same life, the same being, the same human nature. We breathe the same air as polluted as it sometimes gets, and live on this same planet. And if you were to count the nations listed in Genesis chapter 10, you would discover there are 70, seven zero of them. And this is, this is a significant number because in, in the Bible, seven symbolizes completeness or wholeness. At the end of the book of Genesis, Jacob's family consists of, yes, you've guessed it, 70 individuals. Genesis 46, verse 27. So this list of nations in Genesis chapter 10 is more selective than exhaustive. Some individuals, some nations are left out. But it's as if Moses wanted to get to the number 70. It's as if Moses viewed God's people Israel as representative of the human race as a whole. As if these 70 individuals are set apart to bless the 70 nations of chapter 10 of Genesis. Perhaps this is why in Luke 10, Jesus chose 70 disciples to go out and preach the good news of the kingdom of God. One for every nation listed in Genesis chapter 10. Was he doing this to symbolize the future missionary efforts of the church in our world? Well, whatever the case, 
this is why here at Grace Church Broccoli, we financially support and pray for mission partners seeking to tell people about the Lord Jesus on other continents in other countries across the world. This is why any kind of talk about hating the French or the Germans or even the Americans has no place in our hearts, much less in our thinking. (laughs) They are family. They are our cousins. Everything about them should be of concern to us. Their hopes, their dreams, their problems, their struggles, successes and their failures. This is why it is right and good for our government to be helping our cousins in India through the crisis they're currently experiencing due to coronavirus. This is why racism has no place in the world, much less in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Among ethnologists and anthropologists and other race scientists, there has been and is no real agreement as to the exact number of so-called races of humanity nor any agreement about what characteristics would determine these so-called races. You see, the truth is, race is an artificial social and cultural construct used historically by ruling classes to differentiate people groups in order to play them off on one another, to discriminate against them. Listen to how one medical expert put it. Race is just a visible way that humans have decided that we are going to slice and dice different groups of people. Race is essentially just skin colour and it was used in colonial history basically to allow people to discriminate. But the fact is that race is a biological fiction that has no basis in our genetic code. Often at our prayer gatherings, We have prayed for the persecuted church. Who are we praying for? Why? Our cousins and distant relations. But also happen to be our spiritual brothers and sisters in Christ. All the more reason to be concerned for them. So first, according to Genesis chapter 10, the human race is made up of one big family. We are one human races. It is a myth to talk about different races because we are all one race, the human race, one big family. That's the first thing. The second thing is this. Our human race is sadly a divided family. Our human race is sadly a divided family. The civil rights leader, Dr. Martin Luther King, once said this, We must all learn to live together as brothers and sisters, or we perish as fools. We must all learn to live together as brothers and sisters, or else we perish as fools. Of course, he said this because you and I, like he, lived in a divided world where people judge one another, not based on the content of their character, but on crude things like skin color, where you are from, the language you speak, whether you're working class or middle class. And sadly, this fact cost him his life. 
Our world is a place of division. And the divided nature of the human race is reflected in Genesis chapter 10. This table of nations is divided into three sections according to the three sons of Noah. The descendants of Jephthah in verses 2 to 5 split into two groups. One settling in India and the other in Europe. Together they form what is known as the Aryans, or the Indo-Europeans, those family of nations. And Jephthah had seven sons, verse 2. According to those who study such things, Javan, for example, is unquestionably the ancestors of, of the Greeks. While most scholars associate Tarshish with Spain, in verse 4. And much more could be said, but essentially, most British people are descendants of Jephthah. And Moses then goes on, goes into quite a lot of detail with regard to the descendants of Ham in verses 6 to 20. This is because, unlike the family of Jephthah, the descendants of Ham had much more direct contact with God's people, the Israelites, who Moses was writing this for in the first instance. For example, in verse 13, Egypt became the father of seven nations. In verse 15, Canaan's mentioned as the father of 11 nations. And in verse 19, mention is made of Sodom and Gomorrah. And then Moses zooms in on a son of Cush named Nimrod. In verse 8, he's a rather mysterious figure, but one of the great, one of the great and important figures in ancient history. He was the founder of both Babylon and Nineveh, the two great cities of antiquity, but ultimately became the enemies of God's people, the Israelites. One of Ham's descendants named Nimrod is singled out as a mighty hunter before the Lord in verse 8 and 9. See, this was a time when civilizations were few and far between, and when wild animals roamed. And were a constant threat to human existence. Nimrod had evidently distinguished himself in acting to protect people by killing these wild animals. However, it would appear he was more than just a hunter of wild animals. According to Jewish tradition, he was a hunter of the souls of men. If the cities he founded are anything to go by, he was instrumental in introducing a perverted, degraded form of religion into this world. In other words, here was a man who lived for his own glory and sought to advance the kingdoms of this world in defiance against God. And this was the world after God's cleansing judgment of the flood. Along came a man of the likes of Nimrod. And things come to a head in the Tower of Babel in chapter 11, which we'll come to next week. Before the flood, remember, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. Genesis 6 verse 6. After the flood, and no thanks to this man Nimrod, men's hearts and ways continued to be wicked, full of hatred and violence. See, the line of Ham, then, is characterized by this insatiable desire to establish kingdoms 
where men rule supreme, independent of and in constant rebellion against the God of heaven. Apparently, when the 16th century church reformer Martin Luther studied this table of nations here in Genesis chapter 10, he commented, whenever I read these names, I think of the wretched state of the human race. Luther saw sin, evil, violence, hatred and warfare as nations fought against nations. And things have not changed much either before or since the days of Luther. Even though we are one family, the human race is sadly a divided family. Emma Marius' book entitled The History of the World in Bite-Sized Chunks was given to me as a present a few years ago. It's a short yet comprehensive guide to historical events. From the rise and fall of major civilizations and minor ones to the end of the Second World War. And you would think we would have learned after 54 centuries of world history. Yeah, listen to what she writes towards the end of the book. Over 50 million lives have been lost during the war. And many of the dead, at least 35 million, were civilians. At least 10 million, and perhaps as many as 17 million civilians, were deliberately exterminated as a result of Nazi ideological policies, including the systemic, systematic genocide of some 6 million Jews during the Holocaust. The final solution for the Jewish problem, as agreed by the leading Nazis in 1942, came in the form of death camps, six of which were built in Poland in 1942. Here's what I want you to note. Here, another 1.5 million Jews were killed, along with Soviets and Polish, prisoners of war, political opponents, the disabled or mentally ill, homosexuals and other minority groups transported from across Nazi-occupied Europe. See, it wasn't just Jews that Hitler hated. See, our one human race, our one big family, is a divided family. And finally, we have Shem's family in verses 21 to 31. The descendants of Shem are the Semitic peoples who inhabited modern-day Iraq, Iran and eastern Saudi Arabia. And Moses mentions Shelah, the father of Eber, in verse 24. And Eber is where we get the word Hebrew from. According to chapter 11, Shem, Shelah, and Eber, among others, are Abraham's ancestors. The father of the Jewish nation, the father of God's people, the Israelites. See, the Old Testament people of God are Shemites, or descendants of Shem. And if you were to hold up a map of the table of nations, God's people, the Shemites, are literally surrounded on every side by evil and idolatrous nations. As it was in Genesis chapter 10, so it is today for you and me. God's people continue to live in a world surrounded by idolatry and evil. 
by those who reject God their creator. And this is the way it will be until the Lord Jesus Christ returns. According to Jesus' own parables in Matthew 13, the weeds and the, the wheat, the good fish and the bad fish, will all be mixed in together until the very end. As God's people, you and I live in a world of evil and idolatry. And we find ourselves, don't we, attacked on every side, tempted on every side, hated even on every side. And instead of being a light to the nations, we often feel overwhelmed, don't we? And end up, if we're honest, conforming to the pattern of this world. This threat is as real today as it has ever been. And both James and John in the New Testament warn against being assimilated into this world and its way of thinking. James tells us, friendship with the world is hatred towards God. Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. And John tells us, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of his eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. And so while the New Testament letters calls you and I to come out and be separate, to live and to love differently, to let our light shine for all to see, the truth is, are we really any different? And let's be honest, the things that tempt the world are tempting us, you and me, also, are they not? Our desires are often as materialistic and as overindulged as our friends and neighbours. Our aspirations just as arrogant and worldly as our work colleagues. Our relationships with fellow Christians, brothers and sisters, just as hampered by our own selfishness, pride or insecurities. Now, our human race is one big family, yes, but it's also a divided family. And this can be just as true for you and me, even though we own the name of the Lord Jesus. Which brings me to the last thing I want us to see. Our human race will one day truly be a united family. Our human race will one day truly be a united family. Our human race is a single family, it's a divided family, but third, our human race will one day truly be a united family. It's interesting that whenever Noah's three sons are mentioned, the order in which the names appear is always the same. Not according to the age, but it's always the same. So in chapter 6 verse 10, Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham and Jephthah. Chapter 9, verse 18, the sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Jephthah. Chapter 10, verse 1, this is the account of Shem, Ham, and Jephthah, Noah's sons. Yet, did you notice, in chapter 10, the order is reversed. Moses starts with Jephthah's family in relations in verse 2, then moves on to Ham in verse 6, finally ending with Shem in verse 22. So he flips Shem and Jephthah around. You see, this table of nations in Genesis chapter 10 is a bit like a funnel. God's funnel. 
A funnel, as you know, is wide at the top and narrow at the bottom. It starts wide with Noah, his three sons, and the nations that come from them. Shem is put last because the Lord is narrowing the flow of sacred or salvation history. He is restricting the stream of humanity that he will deal with personally and directly down to one family group. The family of Shem. In Genesis chapter 11, after the important digression that is the Tower of Babel for next week, the family of Shem is picked up again. And Moses goes on to narrow it still further to one man. To Abraham. The eventual father and ancestor of the nation of Israel. Chapter 11 Verses 27 to 32. And the rest of the Bible, both Old and New Testament, is essentially all about the children of Abraham, both physically and spiritually. What is God doing here? Why does he funnel Old Testament history down to one man, one family, and one nation, the Israelites? Is God ethnocentric? Or worse, is God a racist? Is he saying that Abraham's family of a nation they would become is somehow better or superior to all the other families of nations in Genesis chapter 10? God forbid. But does God, does the Lord our God have favorites? Well, if you read Deuteronomy chapter 7, the Lord through Moses makes it clear that there was nothing about Abraham's family, the Israelites, and the nation that Abraham would become. That made the Lord choose them. He chose them out of love for both them and for you and me. You see, we're all one big family, remember? The Lord is the creator of all the families of nations in the world. He cares for all of us, which is why we should care for one another. And in choosing Abraham, the Lord was breaking into the hearts and the wills of rebellious people in order to redeem a people for himself, from all the nations of the world. A decisive turning point comes in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3. When the Lord promises Abraham that of all the people on earth, all people on earth will be blessed, Abraham, through you. See, in the Garden of Eden, the Lord God promised Adam and Eve that one of Eve's seed, singular, would crush or strike the Satan who caused their downfall. And the Apostle Paul picks up this idea in Galatians chapter 3, verse 8. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the nations by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. And here it is. Abraham, all nations will be blessed through you. And Paul clarifies this a little further in the same chapter when he writes this. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed, singular. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. The offspring of the woman would come from the family of Abraham, who came from the line of Shem. That offspring was and is the Lord Jesus Christ. The promise given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 
was that the Lord Jesus Christ would one day come and put all the nations of the world right with God. And as they trust, rely, and depend on his work in Jesus for them. On the cross, Jesus took upon himself the curse of our disobedience. All the way back in Genesis chapter 3. He redeemed the nations of the world from the curse of Genesis. By paying the ransom price for our rebellion. By dying on the cross in my place and in your place. So in Acts chapter 2, people from every nation under heaven, we are told, are miraculously enabled to hear and respond to the wonders of what God has done for them through Jesus in their native tongue. And so today, in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, God is bringing together people from all the nations. We are a small little taster of that in this room. And the book of Revelation captures this glorious vision of the future in these words. Have I got one? After this I looked. And there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation. Tribe. People and language. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, Jesus. One day, all the nations of this world will be united around the worship of God the Father and the Lamb, Jesus. And in a place where we will not judge one another so crudely based on the color of your skin, your educational background, where you come from, whether you're a northerner or a southerner, but rather perfectly in love. So what does this mean to be in Jesus' family here and now? Well, in Mark chapter 3, Jesus says his true family consists of those who do God's will by obediently listening to his voice. Can I say, are you listening to Jesus? Or has his voice become overly familiar to you? A kind of take it or leave it sort of voice. That's just got mixed in with all the other voices you hear around you all the time. According to James and John, this will mean crying out to God the Holy Spirit. To help us not to love or crave the things of this world. It will mean shunning the lusts of the flesh. Sex. Money. Power. The lust of the eyes that draw us to such things and the pride that causes us to boast in having them or getting them. Are you asking the Spirit of Jesus Christ to help you adorn the gospel such that the nations gathered in our great cosmopolitan city of London might be drawn to the love of Jesus in your heart? Well, that's a great challenge, isn't it? It's certainly a great challenge to my heart.